episode 112, A Trauma-Informed Approach to Addressing Human Trafficking on the Social Workers Rise podcast. Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. Today we are talking about human trafficking and I do want to give you a trigger warning. This episode does contain conversations around rape, trauma, sex, and child exploitation. So you have been warned, but I do hope that you stick around to listen because we are talking with some experts based out of Santa Barbara County in California. And they are going to be sharing their experiences working with human trafficking and with commercial sexual exploitation of children and young adults. We're going to be hearing from Lisa Khan Akoni, an MA and MFT. She has 25 years of experience working with historically underserved and marginalized youth and their families. And her efforts have really been concentrated on, quote, system involved and trauma exposed transition-aged youth program development and reform. She has done a lot of work around this area and with this population. Very, very excited to talk with her. Also, we will have Jeff Schaefer, and his professional experience includes actually being a pastor, an organizer, and an advocate. He's been working with marginalized groups in Santa Barbara County, and he's supported Um, the Coordinated Services for Survivors of Human Trafficking and Sexual Exploitation under the Human Trafficking Task Force. So we're going to hear from both of them, and I want you to stay around to the end to find out what does lip gloss and hot Cheetos have to do with trauma-informed care. We're going to get right into this episode after this short ad from our sponsor, The Rise Directory. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine, here. We are here with Lisa Kahn and Jeff Schaefer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Can you can you both tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? We heard, you know, your bios in the intro, but it's always good to kind of see, like, you know, exactly in your own words. Jeff, you want to go? Yeah, uh, my name is Jeff Schaefer, and I just joined Kingdom Causes in September 
of, of this year because we received a grant from our county's human trafficking task force to help the task force develop a leadership team, a strategic plan to tackle labor and sex trafficking, uh, create these action groups to carry out the deliverables connected to the strategic plan, create a funders collaborative um, to help support all the good work that's happening and increase capacity for all of our partners. We'll talk a little bit about the need for that. Um, and I got involved primarily after being involved with um, homelessness for 17 years in our county um, and seeing how homelessness was the number one risk factor uh, for trafficking as well. Um, and also kind of seeing how uh, how difficult it is to tackle this issue and all the hard work, hard work that everyone was doing, but we, we weren't giving enough support to all of our boots on the ground partners and we weren't creating enough policy change and we weren't bringing enough funding. So I decided, well, let's step out of homelessness for a little while uh, and dedicate as much time as I can and our organization can to kind of combating human trafficking and our kind of our core mission of kingdom causes is to create um, flourishing um, holistic flourishing neighborhood by neighborhoods. And my job title is uh, Santa Barbara County Catalyst. So I, I kind of say that that gets me the ability to create good trouble. So I love doing that yeah. with Lisa. We have a lot, lot of fun together, even though it's a very difficult topic, topic to talk about. Um, we've created a really great team. So thanks for having mm -hmm. us. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, so I'm Lisa Kahn. Um, I'm a marriage and family therapist. and I've been uh, working with adolescents um, and their families, and in particular, um, adolescents that have experienced significant trauma, out-of-home placement, system involved. Um, I've been doing that for a little over 25 years. Um, and I have worked in many different settings in the mental health field here. It, I've mostly been in Santa Barbara County. Um, but the one that really opened my eyes, even though I've worked with trauma for like 13 years at the regular community clinic, when I went to juvenile justice mental health, I just, like, my whole world got flipped on its head because I tried to go in and apply the regular trauma therapy, trauma-focused therapy on the youth that I was seeing in there and it just wasn't working. And that's where my eyes got opened um, because I, I thought I knew what I was doing. And I was at the in these other settings, but when it came to this population that doesn't normally get through the door of a regular clinic, they come through different doors and we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's when we started started seeing that there was some issue. We started collecting data and we have many partners that I realized when I tried to, you know, get out the bullhorn about this, people were not listening. We learned about how important data is and relationships and, and working together. And so that's been my passion since like 2011, working with uh, commercially sexually exploited youth. And right now I work with Kingdom Causes as well as an independent contractor. I'm also the clinical supervisor and program developer over NOAA's Anchorage Youth Shelter, the Street Outreach Program, and um, my home, which houses like transition aged youth. And then I also work with the, therapy, the Therapist um, Development Center doing some trainings that we're going to be doing with CSEC as well. So we're just kind of, this requires you to wear many different hats, which I love because I, I don't like to sit still. <laughs> this is a very action-oriented population and and work so we love it and i love working with jeff and yes we we get into good fun mostly always good fun but sometimes get in other little trouble too oh good well i have learned something already through your intros i didn't know that homelessness was a pre um precursor i forget the word but like a 
risk factor. There we go. Maybe risk factor for um... it's the biggest. Yeah, it's the biggest contributing factor to sex trafficking is, and I like people to understand it's not just a 15 year old being homeless necessarily. Sometimes they're leaving home because it's not emotionally safe and sometimes not physically safe for them there. So they leave like the food, clothing, shelter, safety to go get love, purpose, belonging. And that's what the traffickers exploit. So it could be housing instability and homelessness, right? We always look at this on a continuum because someone isn't like housed in a stable home and then the next day just homeless, right? So it's sort of, especially with youth, we really look at sometimes their house is not a home. And they need right. to go seek, seek it out. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing that I learned from your intro is that the traditional trauma-informed uh, approach is not effective, which we're going to talk about that later when we talk about, you know, what do we need to know as social workers, as mental health professionals who are going in to work with this population. So listeners, stay to the end to make sure that you listen to that um, that part because it's going to be really juicy. I can already tell. Yes. <laughs> um, so first, let's just make sure that we're on the same page here. What is commercial sexual exploitation of children and young adults, AKA what we might refer to it during the episode as CSECY? C-Y. Yes. yes. So what, what is that? Can you tell us, you know, what, yes. what are we talking about? I'm, absolutely. And I'm going to actually read this off because it's just, it's a little dry, but then Jeff and I will kind of fill in because I want to make sure we hit all the topic, all the main points, but um, and I'm going to break it down so we can understand because many people don't know the difference between like human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation and sexual exploitation. And there's all these different uh, layers to this, but I'm going to break it down so we can see. So commercial sexual exploitation of children and youth. And again, youth, we're going to be counting as those over 18 because once they hit 18, they have a different threshold of reporting uh, for mandated reporters under 18. This is obviously commercial sexual exploitation is reportable. It's been reportable since 2015, and many people don't know this or don't understand how to report this. Um, But we're still trying to get the information out. But it's basically sexually abusing a youth for economic gains in any kind of way. And this can include selling and trading for sex. Now, the selling, we understand. I think everybody has seen, you know, somebody wants some sex act and they give the pimp a certain amount of money and then the sex act happens. That is so rare now, especially with, like, money apps and things happening on the internet. Um, Sometimes it's just camera stuff. Sometimes it's pictures and videos that are sold. So there's many different facets to this. So anytime there's money changing hands, but the other piece is trading youth for sex. So there's also this uh, power trade. So if you look inside of the gangs, for instance, sometimes you'll see younger people who are trying to make a name for us. They'll bring young girls to a party. They'll get them drunk and and they will take advantage of them. Sometimes they turn them out eventually. So we always have to think about, sometimes it's not money that's exchanging hands. Sometimes it gives somebody a, a power up and a leg up in a, in a system that helps them gain in the world in a different way than versus just dollar for dollar. There's also um, child pornography, which again, if uh, anybody asks a 14 year old girl for a picture of their body in any kind of sexually suggestive way, that is child pornography. So this is why we also have to educate our young girls and boys that these things can be on their record. This thing, these things can obviously get sent all over the place. So we have to be really careful, especially with the advent of it being so easy to take video and pictures. Um, sex tourism is another form of sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, where people go to certain places just 
to because they know there's going to be a lot of sex tourism there and that like you take a place like vegas right that there's a lot of people go to vegas just for the sex um the sex workers and and the access to that and then there's survival sex which is probably the number one thing that jeff and i see working with um the homelessness um, issue here is that the, the, if you take a 14 year old who has run away from home and whether that's because she doesn't feel safe there, she's not getting nurtured there, or she's running from her probation officer or whatever that might be, um, how does a 14 year old girl make it on the streets for two weeks? Like who's taking care of her? Who's feeding her? Who's giving her rides? Who's giving her a place to sleep? Who's keeping her safe? It's usually going to be another adult. Why? And if I was an adult and I found a 14 year old girl, I would go call the police or call child welfare, I would get somebody to actually come help them. I wouldn't harbor them and keep them with me. So that already, even that part, it's like, how is she getting her needs met? And this is more likely what we see. And they don't, the youth don't even know that they're being trafficked or exploited because they think that it's okay. I like him. Oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Or, you know, if they have an addiction issue, they need to get drugs or alcohol or whatever. They might have to do things to get that. So there's this, again, this exchange that happens and the trafficker or the exploiter will make it look like this is a mutual thing, but somebody under the age of 18 cannot consent to this in any form. So the survival sex is really tough to identify because they often won't even know that it's happening because it doesn't look like your traditional sex trafficking where there's dollars being passed and you're, you know, you have buyers coming to a door and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then sex um, transactional marriages and things like that, those are also forms of commercial sexual exploitation of children. So we see that sometimes in different groups. Sometimes you see people that young girls that are being kind of given to older men to for to be married off and things like that. So those are also um, commercial sexual exploitation. But the child sex trafficking, the difference between the under 18 and over 18 is the mandated um, reporting requirements for us licensed folks. And then also for the how, how you manage these two things that the, the qualification for children is that force, fraud or coercion does not need to exist. A child under the age of 18 cannot consent she says, no, I love him. He's, you know, 30 year old. I chose to go with him. She cannot. It's against the law. But if they're over 18, forced fraud or coercion must be there in order for this to be considered trafficking. So this is a lot. So I just want to stop and make sure that that all makes sense. Yeah. And also, too, we are talking about California laws. Each state California is going laws. to have their own laws. So check with your local state um, because it may be, it may be stricter, right? It may not be, yes. it may be stricter than that. Yes. And so I think the, the mandated reporting is a, for CSEC is kind of universal, but every county, every state has a different threshold too. So it is really important to go and look in there. These definitions are from the Polaris project. So it's national. So this is sort of your generic kind of thing, but yes, every little area has a different, different approach to it. So. Definitely Lisa, you may want to share a couple of ways you've seen it with younger, you know, how have you seen this with young men and women? Like what situations have you kind of right. worked with? So for with instance, the yeah, I think that's great. So for instance, like we have girls and I worked with, um, youth in a program we had called Rise. 
and like your podcast. Um, and uh, we did that. Yes, we did that for um, five years. We got a $5 million grant and we developed a whole program around there. It has since sunsetted, but we were using it as our template to move forward. But we would see girls that would come back from, let's say, group home placement, um, placed for whatever reason, whether it was through probation or child welfare. And they would tell us like, you know, they would get there. One of the things that's really unique about female in particular is that they tend to run away. So, you know, we all have heard of fight, flight, freeze, right? Everybody's really familiar with these three things. Well, female in particular tends to do this other thing called tend and befriend as well. So fight, flight, freeze, tend and befriend. So, and it's a survival mechanism. It's really like, how do I get close to you, read you, make sure you're happy. If you're the one who could potentially hurt me, I want to know. I want to know ahead of time. I want to try to avoid that. So I actually pull in. Some people want to call this Stockholm syndrome or trauma bonding, but I just don't like there's some, you know, there's some stigma around those words. Um, but this is a survival mechanism because the closer she can get, the more she can read that person. I'm going to say it's a he because most traffickers, most pimps, most buyers are male. I'm um, not always, but I'm just, you know, just just in the interest of time here. So she'll get close to him. So what happens is like a girl goes to a group home and one of the girls I worked with came back and told me exactly what happened to her. She went to a group home, got involved in some conflict, social conflict on with the other girls, because now you've got all it's a CSEC home. So there's six or 12 other girls that have also been exploited all from around the place. They come with uh, usually with a lot of street smarts, a lot of resiliency, and they don't put up with anything. So they are not your traditional trauma victim where they're kind of sad and depressed in a corner. And in fact, it's, it was in the work I did at Fry's with girls, I think we served around 200, 300 unique girls over the five years. Um, rarely would we ever have to call for suicide. Rarely did they try get suicidal. They did other self-injury, which was more destructive to their bodies out there and fighting and running away and stuff. But so she went to this group home. She got in a conflict with uh, some other girls and she wanted to run because that's what they do. They run away. So that's the, so after the tend and befriend, they get really close. And then when they have the blow up, they don't know what to do. And then they often will go into the fight or flight. So they go run, but the other girls have already been groomed there because the traffickers know exactly where the group homes are. So when the girl wants to take off, she goes, well, don't worry. If you do just call my friend, he'll come pick you up. Right. And then she gives him the number. She goes outside. He absolutely calls her. These guys. So one one guy took like a month and she said he was so good. He would drive by the first time he, you know, whistled at me or said hi and drove by again the next day threw a little note, just said, you're really beautiful. You look interesting. You know, I want to know more about you. And then, you know, she kind of got messages to him the next time. Like, you know what she I think I think he ended up buying her some kind of soda or cookies or something like that and put him in a little care package. And then he tossed her a phone, right? Put that in the bushes, right? So it's this thing. And she said, the first time I got into his car with him, she said, he didn't try anything with me. He was so nice, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, then, then the hook comes, right? Hey, do you want to come hang out? I know you're younger, but you seem more mature than all these other girls. Why don't you and your friend bring one of your girlfriends and I'll take you to a party. And then he's got her. Right. Okay? And she said he was so patient. Right. And this was so this is this is this is one of the grooming. Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you are enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to these ads from our sponsors. If you're planning to take the BBS law and ethics exam, 
the ASWB master's or clinical licensure exam, or if you're studying for the MFT exam, then you need a proven program that can help you understand the exam questions and pass with confidence. If this is you, I highly recommend the Therapist Development Center. I personally use TDC to pass my law and ethics and clinical exams and found the program provided me with everything I needed to pass with confidence. TDC's program integrates various ways of learning in an organized fashion containing all of the information you need to pass without the overwhelm. And now bonus, TDC is also offering a library of continuing education courses that fulfill your license renewal requirements and will support you in your career development. If this sounds like something that you need, visit their website, therapistdevelopmentcenter.com and use the code SWRISE10 at checkout to receive 10% off any of their CE courses, including their brand new course, On the Edge of Life, an introduction to suicidality. You can also check out the link in the show notes. And then we have other girls that will say, I think I shared with you, just like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like, yeah, he's older, but it's okay. It's like, I didn't have to do a lot. No, I wanted to. It's okay. It's not, a, you know, and you'll see them sort of in this process of minimizing it because it's sometimes they don't have to do the full kind of sex act. Sometimes it's just things or that just doing like dancing or taking their clothes off or giving pictures. Um, but then we have some girls that literally it's like, they call them skip parties where it's like a, it's a tactic that they use and it's oftentimes used by gang members who are usually the traffickers or so organized crime that's involved in this not usually just one pimp or a trafficker um, and they'll they'll go to girls that, that look like they might be having a hard time at home or struggling with their self-esteem and they'll say hey do you guys they'll kind of groom them for a little bit do you want to go to a party and we're going to have it tomorrow in the afternoon during a school week okay so one is like they want to do it so no one's really going to notice because it's like just come over for a couple of hours and go home. Parents don't know you ditched until whatever the like school reports it. But the bigger thing is, is they want to know which kids will break the rules. OK, and then so if that girl comes to my party that I know and she brings a friend. It's like I told her she's listening to me. She wants my affection, my attention. And now she ditched. She's not going to tell anybody because she doesn't want to get in trouble. But I know something about her now. She's willing to give up safety, right, and security to go find love, purpose, and belonging. So these are just some examples. And that girl that went to that party that then got plied with a bunch of alcohol, possibly drugs, and maybe passed around that time or passed around the next time, she doesn't even know that that's exploitation. So how can she report this? How can she name it? Because she thinks she went there willingly. But you right. try to put a 14-year-old up against a 30-year-old career, criminal, mastermind, manipulator, right? That studies psychology maybe more than we do. You know, um, she, has, she doesn't stand a chance. And it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm wondering, you know, where does these, it must be a fine line or maybe a gray area between self-determination and like our mm -hmm. responsibility as, um, as professionals to keep them safe mm -hmm. because while we do want to respect their autonomy and encourage, you know, empower them to make their own decisions, um, it it seems like it would be really, really difficult because they're making a decision 
that looks safer than their current environment at home. Mm -hmm. And how do, I mean, that seems like yes. a really tough spot to be in. It is. And I, Catherine, that's a perfect way to put this problem, right? It's a conundrum because, you know, it is very difficult to watch a 14 year old girl, girl walk out the door out of your office when you know she's not done, right? So when we look going back, so this is the hard part. It's a, it's a crime of psychology, much like domestic violence or intimate partner violence, where people go, why did you go back? Why'd you go back? Well, we're, you know, those are usually, we're talking about adults that have agency that can actually go get a job or, you know, work somewhere or whatever, and they don't know how to leave, right? How is a 14 year old going to know how to do this? These guys come and get them. So it's, and some people liken it to, um, Oh, addiction, they keep going back and they have all these relapses, which I don't like. I don't like using that pathological. We celebrate the returns versus focusing on the relapse, right? It's it's a we're, we're focusing on the positive stuff. You show up for five minutes out of your hour. That's a that's a win on my part. I don't go, oh, you missed your appointment. So, you know, your case is going to get closed. We don't do any of that. But it is very difficult to allow that that choice and that empowerment. But it has to be there because I have found anytime someone tries to rescue or save or they used to, in our county, when I first started this, the judge was like, well, we'll just put them all on probation because we're a dual jurisdiction. So, I mean, we're not a dual jurisdiction. You're either probation or child welfare. You cannot be both. The best is both because you can keep cases open on both sides. So a lot of times they go to juvenile probation because they could at least lock them up to keep them safe. Well, what you do when you take a female, lock her up. You now associate her with even more gangs and criminalize her. And now she's ashamed. Now she's in trouble. Now she's getting charges because she, you know, had a dirty test or she didn't show up for a probation thing and just stack, stack, stack. Right. And so it's very complicated and challenging to do this work, knowing that that person is going to leave and likely not be extracted out of this life or know how to leave or know what it is for sometimes years. It's really hard and it's hard on us to do the work. It's hard to prepare yourself for that secondary trauma. The stories that you hear and the things that you see, it's really tough. Like we just had a girl at our site that, you know, she told us I got to get out of here, but they placed her with us. And with she said, they, they're going to come and get me. It's like, you know, and they did. They pulled up in a car, took her, found, we found her down in LA and she was, with people that were not safe in an unsafe place. So, and, and in that little bit of time, she was gone for about four days. And in that little bit of time, in the house, in the place that they found her, there was several adult men. They, you know, we have to assume that she'd been sexually assaulted numerous times because they have a quota that they have to reach. So it's anywhere from five to 15 to 20 times a day that they have to perform these sex acts. So when she comes back, so she's not just raped one time, right? Or it's not even just a gang rape. And I hate to say this as if it's something small, like a gang rape is small. But what happens to the girls is every day, all day, no break, no nothing. And it's just sex, 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 right? So how do you treat that? This is different than any kind of PTSD or compound trauma that we think about. We know that sexual assault is really difficult, but we usually don't have this many, we're talking sometimes hundreds of perpetrators, of adult men buying sex or and or pimps running them, right? And so every day that happening, so we're like over the lifetime, we're thinking thousands. So what do you do with this? It's very complicated to 
treat, to see, and then they don't present as the perfect victim. They don't ask for help. They're not going to self-identify. And in fact, usually they get found by law enforcement who want to get the bad guy, which we need to. But in that process, she's she's just a means to get information on them so that they can prosecute. They're not, and she's usually cussing them out, refusing to cooperate. She usually makes a big scene in front of the traffickers because it's not safe for her not to, right? And when she's talking to us, never is she more at risk because that's their property and she's their money and the consequences are very high if they get caught. Right. right. So when, think- we, when we escalate the, the, cons- the legal consequences, we escalate the risk to the victim directly. I don't want to miss out on this idea too of yes. secondary trauma. And when we talk about yes. sentences for people interested in, you know, either social workers or people interested in that kind of work. Um, I think one of the things I see in, I've seen it more in working directly with people on the streets and all the partnerships that do it there. It's that we have to do a better job of kind of assisting our social workers, um, making sure they, they have everything they need building capacity so we can actually pay them more for this hard work. Um, so one of the things Lisa and I are working on is we're trying to build a better system so that people, young people work, even working earlier with college students, if they have an interest in going this kind of work is how do we create a better support system for them? How do we help these agencies that are, that are hiring them um, to make sure they have the, the right training and then they have the right support. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that have been, been doing direct social work with people on the streets for a long time, but, they don't even often get to meet with their own supervisors who ask them, how are they doing? So I think there's a whole system that we need to look at because you can see the amount, as Lisa talks, you can see the amount of work we have to do and the amount of um, kind of secondary trauma and things that are, that are boots on the ground people experience. Mm -hmm. And part of our job kind of helping to coordinate is yeah, to bring more capacity and support to them. And, um, and, hope, and hope in the midst of the hard work they're doing. Right. Just yeah. trying to recruit them into this work is really challenging because a lot of people, as you said, kind of the savior thing, right? That they go in and, and thinking, oh, I'm going to get to help children arrest, but it's a long game. It is a, a process that takes a very long time of mostly outreach and engagement initially and just getting them comfortable to see you. Sometimes they return back to you tons of times before they actually start to open up. And so it does require a lot of um, infrastructure of support for the youth, either youth care workers that are unlicensed, that are like intensive case managers and outreach workers, or the licensed staff to really, they need the, what they've found. And West Coast Children's Clinic did uh, some research and some recommendations around this. And they basically said all staff, including unlicensed staff, have to have double what you would have for normal clinical supervision for licensed folks that just to do this work to reduce burnout and get really good at what we do because it does look it's nothing like I learned in school that's for sure yeah and I'm glad that you brought this up because here on the social workers rise podcast I'm really a strong advocate for the social workers themselves and it sounds like doing this work you're exposed to trauma every single day And you're right. It is important to have that extra support and be financially compensated for the energy and the skills that you are bringing. Because like you said, we are, this is not like a a swooping in, like, right? Like this is, 
um, a long-term game, game that we're doing here. And a lot of times I feel like the, um, the stereotype or the idea of um, people um, doing human trafficking work or, you know, on the rescue side, if you will, um, is that they're just going to, you know, roll up to the girls and swoop them up and say, hey, you know, we're here to save you. And the girls say, yay. Thank you. And that's it. <laughs> never seen it happen in all the years. Never seen it happen. Not one time. Yeah. You will get punched in the face if you try to do that. That's right. That's <laughs> Literally, right. Yes. Literally. Yeah. Hey, so, Catherine, you already know. <laughs> Yeah, no, there is absolutely no way. This work is not for me, but there are people out there like you guys who are fabulous at it. And I hope that um, some of our listeners are at least encouraged um, with this information, just knowing a little bit more about it, knowing that there is a need for non-licensed and licensed mm -hmm. people because, you know, it's hard right now. Like the economy is hard. We're looking for jobs. So yes. we want to know that this is available. Um, yes. Before we get into like more job specifics, because I do have some job questions for you. I'm wondering, like, how big is this on a national level? Like, what are we looking at here? Yeah. So just I just looked up the most recent statistics and I get want to give a little caveat here is that all the statistics in this, you ask different organizations. Everybody has a little bit of a different number because there is an issue with the definition of what is confirmed versus what's suspected. So, you know, as a as a clinician doing counseling, um, if a client tells me this happened, it happened. If I'm probation, you have to prove it, right? So it's so that's always been an issue. But the National Trafficking Hotline um, said we got last uh, 2021 got 50,000 human trafficking calls, and of that, right, California is consistently the highest amount of reports. So we, we're at 13% of all the states, which is way higher than anybody. Now, what's hard about this is, is trafficking happening more in California than it's happening in the Midwest? We don't know because is California just better at reporting? We don't know. We don't have a way to tease this out. This is why, the, this is why these numbers get really complicated. And of all the calls and text messages and emails that the hotline received, you don't always get this was a 13 year old girl or this was somebody from so and so. So so sometimes they can't even pare down the information because they are not collecting that kind of data on people. They want them to call and not feel like they're going to get hounded. Right. Um, they do have a lot of self-reporting, but they don't. It's not thorough. So you never really they give different names. They might say a different age. They're just some of if they're under 18, they're likely on the run and somebody's looking for them. And it's usually probation, they're going to get arrested. And so they don't want to come home. So it's really complicated in that. But when we did, uh, we in, just in our county alone, uh, West Coast Children's Clinic did some research all along sort of uh, California and looked at different areas. And we and our system involved you. So that's juvenile probation and child welfare. We are three in every out of every 10 of those kids involved in those systems, three of them are either strongly suspected of CSEC or confirmed. So we have a higher average than the rest of California. And it's difficult because again, each county, each state, they all do stuff differently and they count and calculate. So that's why Jeff and I have been sort of banging our heads to try to get like uniform data, shared data, unduplicated data. And it's, everybody has a different system. You, you know, things can't get shared. So it's very complicated. What I will say, is that it is a very big deal. And out of all of the um, human trafficking cases that were reported of, of all times in the um, national database, 50% uh, are children. 
Okay. And of those 50%, um, a good, almost all of them are female. So it's, this is, this is again, this, you know, we, this is consistent across the board everywhere. Now worldwide, it looks a little different depending on different countries and stuff. And I'm not an expert in those areas, but you know, people think United States that with, we don't have domestic trafficking here, that it's all kids from other countries. We don't need that. We have kids on the street every day. They don't have to, they don't have to bring somebody in from another country. We've got kids right here that they can exploit and use, and they do. Right. And that's a really heartbreaking statistic. I did the math on that. And that is five to six people calling in per hour throughout the day, calling in on this hotline um, every yes. single day. So that is, that's a lot of people. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the, what are what are some of the challenges that we should be aware of? So if we're interested in getting into this work, you know, what do we need to be prepared to see or to deal with? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is, again, a multifaceted issue. But if we just even just staying focused on the workers and recruiting people to do this work, we have to do that because we are already there's already a, just a mental health social work shortage everywhere. I mean, We've got really good paying jobs that used to be the, you know, the golden goose egg. Nobody is working that way anymore. It's, it's changed. And it's not just because of the pay um, and the secondary trauma. It's, there's a lot more options now for people in the behavioral health, social worker field to do online work and remote and stuff. But we really need people to be pipelining from early on. And that's what Jeff and Kingdom Causes do. They get young people early in their college career hit high schools too, to get them interested in this work. And I will say one of the things that was the, the best and probably worst at the time thing that happened to me was I went from my desk assessor doing assessments, medical billing, you know, treatment plan, telling my little team what to do in my office. My clients got brought back to me behind the bulletproof glass, sign your name, wait in the waiting room, right? That was my life. I thought I had made it, I had windows and, you know, it's like, oh, and then they're like, you're going to juvenile hall. You now, your office is going to be shared with three other clinicians in an old cell with no windows. And I was so upset. I was like, what? And then I got there, my treatment that I had thought I nailed down so good and my trauma work that I've been doing for 13 years did not work at all. So then I got that. And then I was in kind of an environment that was like, who is this mental health lady? Right. We don't, but we, we have a different mindset now I'm working with probation, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Not, I mean, outside of my other stuff, my child and getting married and stuff, but professionally and personally, it pushed me out of my comfort bubble. I created friendships that I never would have done before. I found a purpose in my life um, that working with the youth, they're the easy part of this. It's the systems that are around that. And then learning that, you know, I used to be like the torch and the hammer. That was my approach. Well, Lisa, I was not very popular. Like everyone's like, Lisa's coming. Oh, God, like, <laughs> let's not let's not invite her because I became a harbinger, right, of bad news. And I had to realize I had friends to help me. Jeff was one of those ones. He's like kind of softens things so that the truth is the truth, but you don't have to scream it. You want people to come to the table. Right. So we really need young people that have and not just young people but people young in this profession to come in and try this out because i don't think i would be where i am today professionally or personally it makes you really look at yourself and i did get good supervision where i was luckily and i sought it out and it changed the way i looked at the world i healed myself in the process i know we don't go into this work to heal ourselves but i mean come on 
you do. You do that in anything you do, like helps you get better if you if you let it and you want it. But it is really about the genuineness. And what I appreciate about this work more than anything is you cannot BS anything in this. Those kids see right through you. So you have to come straight, right? Because <laughs> they're going to notice and they're going to tell you and they're going to poke. And, you know, and so it actually really it's kind of like a deep dive into your own kind of clinical supervision process, because you are also witness, like we ask our kids, be witness in your process to do the work. Like, well, so do we, right? I got to get witness too, all through my career. I'm never done. And so, so I've never had, and I work with, again, some of the most disheartening, sad, scary at times stories. I've never been happier. I've never felt more engaged, more alive in my work. The relationships I've formed because the people that do this work are special, really special and a little little wacky, which is right up my alley. I'm very happy about that. Um, so it's just a really great, inspiring work. And I hope that people that want to do this or interested can that we can fire a little spark under that because there's a lot that needs to be done. And there's kind of a place for everyone if you're interested in kind of slipping in. So what so what I'm well, hearing. Go no, ahead, I'd say Jeff. one of the unique one of the unique things we did was create these college campus traffic action groups, which are really ways for us to bring more interested young people on board. And the difference between homelessness and human trafficking, right, and CSEC is that homelessness is in front of you every day, whereas human trafficking is le less visible. So there's a huge edu education piece we need to do. But the thing Lisa didn't mention is that you know human trafficking globally is a $150, $150 billion industry, right? And that's labor trafficking and sex trafficking. But we've got to recruit as many resources to fight this as resources are going into, um, you know, that traffickers are greedy and making the money. We need to raise those kind of resources to support. So the other thing about that we have to help social workers understand, we have to do better support for them. But as they come involved and they they join agencies and then they rise up, right? They, they move up into higher positions, if if our all these boots on the ground agencies are not collaborating and working together and they get isolated, then really that's when we don't do a good job. Um, we have to all work together. It's kind of an all hands on deck approach um, that we're trying to create. Um, and so I'm hoping that people as they enter into this kind of work can begin to recognize that um, and how effective it is if we work together. Right. So so part of a trauma assessment, right, is when you look at the cans or any kind of, you know, assessment tool that's for trauma, they typically say, like, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? To, and it requires you to ask those questions. Well, this 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 population does not answer questions like that. So 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 number one, you have to assume it's there. So I take I go from 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 jump and say we're, you know, in in the way I learned in psychology was, you know, not to assume and to kind of, how do you know until you ask? And it was just sort of, you know, this sort of uh, assessment interview process. But then we all ended up, you know, with our clipboard and our checklist, right? And sometimes that first initial assessment is, you know, you're filleting this person that they, they just met you for the first time. You have to have all this information, right? So we really flipped that on its head. So it is not the intake process at front. It is. We don't have a clipboard. I have hot Cheetos and lip gloss. 
okay? And maybe a sandwich. It's the cheapest therapeutic tool I've ever had in my life, okay? I just meet them first. So if I meet them with clipboard and a four-hour assessment, and then you're going to tell the assessor this, and then they're going to assign you, they're going to staff a case, and two months later, you're assigned to your team, and we don't even know where the hell you are anymore, right? This is So it doesn't work. They don't come in through the door that way. You have to go find them. And in, this, in systems where you call, the, they make an appointment, they take all your symptom checklists and go through that. Our girls are so transitory that they can never get a school assessment. I shouldn't say never. They rarely are able to get like a school assessment done because they don't stay put long enough. And whether that's them running back and forth or getting incarcerated or going to different group homes or they just don't go to school, it's a plethora of things. So that traditional sort of trauma-informed care where they come to you and then you get to know, ask all the questions and their symptoms are so clear on the DSM that you kind of understand that that's happened. Ours look like, as you said, kind of like they might pop you in the face. They might tell you to F off, right? They are not coming saying, oh, help me, I'm trafficked. And because it just doesn't happen. So part of this is to just change the way we, we move. And so I'm, I'm more about like, just understanding like my, my process is the relationship is the intervention first and foremost. If you don't have a little bag of tricks in there that you learned or whatever that's worked, that that's okay. If you draw a blank because she just told you the most just shocking story you've ever heard in your life, that's fine. Just be there, right? Just be present. Get a cup of tea, you know, take a walk with her, whatever you need to do. Don't think you have to do something. And so the first and foremost piece of this is, is the relationship. And then the outreach and engagement. So it goes like this kind of stabilization process, but you're always building the rapport and relationship because sometimes it takes a very long time to get there. And my process of celebrating the return. So we don't have a waiting room. We have a welcome room. Okay. So at our site with Rise, we had, they can come in at any time, the refrigerator, the drinks, the hot Cheetos, the cup of noodles, whatever it was they wanted, bathrooms full of makeup feminine products, whatever it is that they needed. They didn't have to go, can I get a soda? Can I get some water? Like, no, you don't have to ask. You just, this is your place, right? They have bean bags. It's, it's very set up. So, so it's really about, you know, it's almost kind of like a, also addressing the, the youth culture versus adult culture. So if you look at, you know, how clinics are typically set up, they're very nice for adults, but teenagers might not always want to be there. So it's really meeting them where they are. And then the outreach and engagement looks very different. Again, I don't know what a 50 minute therapy session looks like. I rarely, I mean, I do in private practice, I have those, right? When it's just the hour thing, but here it's, you just don't know. And everything is therapeutic. So it's, again, it's about that relating. I come genuine. I don't judge. I, I walk alongside, but you are the driver. I don't, I don't have any power over you, but I recognize inherently the power differential and my position as an adult, my position as a, a licensed therapist or whatever. I have to recognize that I have this influence and I don't want to exploit their fear, their insecurity, their trauma and me, put me in the position of like, well, I'm going to get her safe because I'm going to show her that I know, I know better. And we have a tendency to want to wrap our arms around, but if you do that, you're just like everybody else for them. So what I want is for her to see, like, I ask nothing of you. Just show up. And that's enough. And I didn't, I'm never going to say, well, you're 30 minutes late. That's not how I agree. 
Thanks for showing. I got 30 minutes because right, I'm back to back. I got a client after this, but we can make it up somewhere celebrating those returns versus focusing on the deficit mind of things. Reduce risk, reduce, reduce, re reduce what? Reduce to reduce to zero because it doesn't go in the other direction, right? And then what happens? So, so we got you from 10 to zero. Now what? So now you're absent risk, but you have no ha joy and happiness in your life. So we're really working on this other level. And if we can show through the relationship, that's where that corrective experience and that healing happens. And I really, truly believe this population, all populations, trauma-informed care has to go to this level. We need to get out from behind our desk, out from behind clipboards, lengthy assessments, all that stuff, and start relating. Yes, you can, you can, you'd be surprised how much information you get after they get to know you. I mean, or go to their house. That, that's it. That's an even bigger eye opener, but it gives you a whole different sense. And then you can do all kinds of stuff because there, that trust is there. And most importantly, I trust myself to be there as a clinician, right? I know that even if I don't have the answer, I'm going to go, I don't know. You stumped me today. <laughs> can we do something else until tomorrow? And then I'll get back to you or let me make a phone call or, hey, how I handled that yesterday. I don't like it. I don't like how I did that. Can we try this again? Because I'm going back, I'm also role modeling. This is how you solve problems, how you say, I'm not sure. I don't have all the answers, right? And so it's really about this relating first. And then we can apply all the trauma-informed care we want. But it's so, it's still medical modeling to me. This is my experience. It's still got, and I've done it for years. And I literally had to, like, they had to pry it out of my cold, dead hands because I didn't, I saw how it worked in these other places so well. And I was comfortable with it. And it is a little free flow um, and it feels good. I like that kind of work. I'm very, I like that action and that, that kind of movement. Um, but the biggest piece is the genuine connectedness that you get. It's just, and you're not responsible for them, right? It's they're responsible for themselves. And so it's a, a different relating and it reduces the, the traumatic um, secondary trauma because I'm not in charge of, their safety in their life, right? It's really it's switching that off. And it's hard to do because it's a kid. I'm not going to lie. It's, I don't always do the greatest job at that. Right. That's powerful. I mean, we're tossing aside the clipboards, leaving the pens at home, bringing the lip gloss and Cheetos. I am for it. Hot Cheetos. It's hot Cheetos. Hot Cheetos. Yeah. Nobody wants the regular Cheetos. No. Hot Cheetos. Yes, I love this. One question that is keep popping up for me, and I feel like I should ask is, if we have our own trauma and our own experiences, and maybe we've mm -hmm. been in the life ourselves, do you think that that would hinder our ability to do this kind of work? No, not not straight up, right? But you have to have a supervisor or a mentor that tells you countertransference is not a dirty word. It is, first of all, how would you not have counter to be a human being? I mean, it's impossible. Um, and how I'm feeling in a room, I'm not the only one feeling like that. This person in front of me has probably also had this experience with other humans. Why not use it more as a compass? But if I'm afraid to go talk to my supervisor or the people around me and say, hey, I got really triggered or God, I love this client. The ones that we don't talk about, the clients we really like, we, those ones are fine. We leave those out of supervision. We don't need to talk about them because we feel so good. Right. And they might have the most issues going on. And you have no clue, but it's the ones that we don't feel good around or that we're like, uh, we're kind of like, how do I work with this? I don't feel like right. That those are the ones we usually take. But chemtransference goes both ways. It's what I'm drawn to and ones that I'm not. And so 
yes, if I feel like this, I'm sure someone else has felt like this. I'm sure this youth has experienced this. And I always say that my job is to create a container and as much as I can get out of my intellect, which we think we're at, like when we were, you know, evolved, whatever the hell that is, like we have this education, we've gone, got our license or whatever that looks like that we are now, we figured it out. But sometimes when you're just up here in the intellect, you're so far away from your emotion that you're not, you're now you're a robot. Now you're not like human. I always say the wise mind is right here, right? Between the intellect and the emotion. And it's a nice synthesis between the two. And that is a space of presence. And I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm just with that person, right? I'm trying to have those, those moments where you get the, the goosebumps, right? And you know, you're locked in and you know, something's happening. It might just be fleeting, but that's okay. I don't need it to be the whole time, right? And so that secondary trauma stuff is going to get triggered, especially if you have trauma already. And yes, we are 100% responsible. Like what happened to us when, when we got abused or victimized was not our fault, but it is our responsibility to manage. So we have to lead by example. And how am I supposed to tell somebody, come tell me, be witness in your vulnerability. And I don't do it myself. I have to, in order to inspire, I have to walk my talk. Okay. And so sometimes they tell you like, yo, I got some work to do. (laughs) I got really triggered by this. I got to go, you know. And so I think sometimes it's the people with lived experience that can sit in front of someone else and be like, I don't know exactly what's going on for you, but I've been somewhere similar and man, it was tough. And I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. I love that. So if we are interested in getting involved in this work, um, you all are based in the Santa Barbara County, um, you know, in California, you know, what do we do? How do we, how do we learn more? What are our next steps? Jeff? Well, probably every county. So everyone could Google and see if you have a local task force. So that's one way you can kind of find out what's happening in your local community already, as far as a structural approach to kind of, reducing or solving human trafficking. Um, the Polaris website has a good one hour basic training on human trafficking. There's a lot of re- resources on the Polaris website if you're interested in the topic as a whole. And then usually if there is a task force, then they can kind of direct you or some kind of hub for efforts. They can direct you locally to agencies that maybe you want to intern at or you have an interest in finding out more. Um, so to me, those are kind of some of the, the ways that um, – you can find out that something's happening in your neighborhood and you can join in locally. Um, if people are interested just in what we're doing in Santa Barbara County, my, I can give my contact information and it's Jeff dot Schaefer, S H A F F E R at kingdom org. And Hey, it's everyone on deck. I mean, I talked about business community members, we've got faith community leaders, we've got all the service providers. We're working on colleges. We're working with a couple of high schools to try to, engage students just in educating and, and giving them an early passion if they have a heart for this. So um, hopefully that's being designated. Those kind of ideas are kind of popping up um, throughout our country, um, kind of creative solutions. But that's kind of my job is like innovation and capacity building and all those kind of things are fun for me. And to support, you can see why we're lucky to have Elisa Kanakani in our, in our county. Um, every time I'm with Lisa, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. So it's, it's wonderful to have um, kind of these subject experts to help help us along too. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you 
so, so much for the work that you do and for coming on to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Um, listener, you heard it here. They are hiring licensed and unlicensed <laughs> professionals. Yes. Hit them up. And yes. there is a huge need all over the United States. So do not be shy. Research your own local um, human trafficking task force and get involved there. See where you can get started. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you love this episode, be sure to subscribe and text this episode to a friend. If you want more, there are a few ways we can get to know each other and work together. First, definitely subscribe to the Friday resource email list. The link is in the show notes. And that's where you can learn more about the courses I offer, including clinical essentials, for the future therapist, and the Pulse Basics for medical social workers. I'll also be sending out occasional tips and resources and other happenings within the social work industry. And for all your clinical supervision needs, be sure to visit risedirectory.com. This is a national directory of clinical supervisors for social workers, and we also provide free resources that you can use within your own clinical supervision. Lastly, if you have more individualized needs, I do offer coaching, individual consultations, and am available for public speaking engagements for social workers and change makers. Lastly, the boring legal stuff, but very important. The information in this podcast is not meant to be a supplement for therapy, professional advice, or clinical supervision. This content is provided as is solely for informational purposes. It is not legal, health, or safety advice. I am not advising you as a therapist. Organizations should engage their own experts to ensure any adoptive measures are compliant with applicable laws and standards in their jurisdictions. The opinions expressed by individuals or organizations are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of Social Workers Rise or Catherine Moore. References to specific products or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendations by Social Workers Rise.